Hello, Marvelites! You're listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 629. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I am Angelique Roche. And Ryan, guess what? What? It's my birthday week. Happy birthday week! And Marvel has given me so many things to celebrate with, um, including this podcast, because this is the official Marvel podcast where we get to talk about all the things happening this week in Marvel. Oh, yeah. Uh, We got a lot of fun stuff ahead this week. We're going to go real deep, a big deep dive into Marvel's Spider-Man 2 with Brian Intahar, the game's director, as well as Marvel Games' man with the plans, Bill Roseman. Now, we're going to say this right off the top. It's a spoilery chat. It is what we call in the biz a spoiler cast of sorts. So be prepared, you scurvy dogs. It's going to be a big one. Very exciting as we talk about Marvel Spider-Man 2 later in the show. But how about we start with Marvel Spider-Man 2 right now? Yo, if you have played this game, it is absolutely fantastic. And that is why there's no surprise that Marvel Spider-Man 2 is nominated for Game of the year. That's right. The Game Awards announced their nominations this week and Spider-Man 2 is up for a bunch of just, you know, all the things. Like Mm -hmm. Game of the Year, Best Game Direction, Best Narrative, Best Audio Design, Best Performance by Yuri Lowenthal who plays Peter Parker, Spider-Man and he took all of my emotions. (laughs) Innovation in Accessibility and Best action adventure go ahead and head over to the game awards website to cast your vote and then tune into the stream on december 7th because we're gonna all be rooting on our favorite spideys yeah uh the game awards is fan voted so spidey team spidey squad get out there let's all do our part let's vote for marvel spider-man 2 in those seven categories i already voted i want y'all to do it too support the scene Let's keep things rolling because earlier this week, Marvel released the Marvel Multiverse role-playing game, The Cataclysm of Kang. And that is the first adventure book for the Marvel Multiverse role-playing game. And super cool. We love it. It's very exciting. And here to talk about a little bit about the brand new update is the writer of the Marvel Multiverse role-playing game, Matt Forbeck. The Cataclysm of Kang is an adventure book that takes characters from rank one, which is base level, which is like shield agent or origin story, all the way up to rank six, which is cosmic level, like Silver Surfer, Captain Marvel, etc. And uh, it has six different adventures in it. They're written by myself, uh, Jesse Scoble, Devinder Thiara, Elisa Teague, B. Dave Walters. And again, I come in and uh, finish it off with the last one as well. And you can play them in any order you like. I mean, if you want to play them as a full campaign that you can go from one to the other, it's a 256-page book. There's lots of material in there. It'll keep it going for months, if not a year or longer. Uh, it also includes 60 different uh, new character profiles written by my son, Marty, who also did the profiles for the original game. So there's a ton of material in there. There's some new rules for things like new vehicles and such, and plenty of stuff for people to play with for months and months to come. If you're looking for a good gift for a D&D player or anybody who's RPG curious, as we like to call what we hope is a, one of, a part of our market, I think the core rulebook, the Marvel Multiverse role-playing game, is a fantastic gift for that. It gives people a great starting ground to be able to sit down and start learning how to play the game and introduce them to Marvel Comics and all the different characters and how to play these kind of games. 
If people you care about already have the Marvel Multiverse role-playing game, the Cataclysm of Kang would be a fantastic gift for them. Uh, the game itself is a great place to start, but this gives them things to do with that game and all sorts of amazing epic adventures to play with that game. So this should keep them busy for months and months to come. You can pick up your copy of The Cataclysm of Kang today at your local comic book shop or wherever books are sold. All right, all right, all right. But once you move yourself over to that bookstore, mm-hmm. you can then head over to this week in Marvel move, Thor and Loki, Trials of the Ten Realms, Episode 13, Blood... <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for you to read that. Blood Icicle. Oh, my. Wow. Mm-hmm. Blood Icicle Canyon. You, Thor, and Loki depart from Vanaheim and Idun with a neat bit of jewelry and head over to the lovely, slowy plains of Blood Icicle Canyon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have a great but moment in there where the brothers so are like, good. at the same time, Blood Icicle Canyon. Like, both... Excited and terrified. It's a real I mean, part. that is exactly yeah. how I feel reading it. Yeah. But if Frost Giants are not your thing, you can head over to X-Men Age of Orcus, Episode 7, Gold and Blue. Two amazing colors. Uh, you meet Emma Frost and Jumbo Carnation and get a costume and then a mission from Jean and Scott, I guess. It's fun. Uh, we've got someone who um, has some... some sinister things in mind if you will make sure to download the zrx app so you get marvel move you can go to zrx.app slash marvel move or just search marvel move on your apple ios app store or google play and go check it out seven day free trial or subscribe and enjoy all the episodes forever uh so we are asking who is the new spirit of vengeance and we are soon going to find out. So rev up your engines for a new era of ghostwriter from writer Benjamin Percy and artist Danny Kim coming in March 2024. Uh, no, we look forward to finding all about that in the coming weeks. But right now, let's tell you a little bit about the new Spider-Woman series because Spider-Woman is waging war against her greatest enemies in a brand new solo series, which launches later this month from writer Steve Fox and artist Carola Borelli. And it's um, it's an ongoing series, but it's kicking off during the big street-level crossover event, Gang War. And to tell us a little bit about what's to come is our boy, writer Steve Fox. Hi, Steve. Hi, thanks for having me back. Uh, always a delight. Now, um, you know, we're talking about Spider-Woman, and this is not your first Spider-Rodeo. Obviously, you've worked on uh, story starring Spider-Man and Spider-Ham, Web Weaver, which we love, to name a few. But I think, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is your first time working with Jessica Drew, a.k.a. Spider-Woman. So how does, how does she differ to you from some of those other Spider-People? Well, semi-technically, there is a Jessica Drew cameo in the second Spider-Ham. I believe it's a kangaroo dressed up as (laughs) Jessica Drew, because it's not even the the ham version of Jessica Drew. It's an actor portraying the ham (laughs) version of uh, Jessica Drew. So yes, this is the closest I've actually gotten. Layers Um, upon layers. (laughs) Yeah. I love Jess. I think, you know, fans and readers will probably agree she's the most distant outlier to the spider family in a lot of ways. You know, she and She-Hulk were created around the same time back in the the 70s. But Spider-Woman has never been all that close to Peter Parker, whether it's 
personality and team-ups or powers. You know, she's got a more diverse power set than than most of the others. So I think she operates in a fun middle ground. You know, she's been looped in so much since the Spider-Verse took over because, of course, why wouldn't you? It's a great platform. But she kind of lives more in the the street-level super spy, uh, you know, private investigator space in a lot of her series. And it's, it's a lot of fun to pull those together and, and try to present a new yet familiar take on Jessica Drew. Yeah. You know, Jess, uh, as a, a number of our listeners will know, recently went through some incredibly traumatic events due to the end of Spider-Verse. That one's for you, Nick Lowe. Uh, she was erased from reality. She was brought back. And now that she's back, how does that play into her story? How does she reconcile with that? And, and, and I, how much do you want to share about what really like that has done to her? Yeah, I mean, I want to play a little coy, but I think between that and Amazing Spider-Man 31, where a lot of us got to do prologue stories for um, upcoming books, uh, you know, Eric Coda and I did a, a Spider-Woman story in that issue. Uh, when she webbed out of existence um, in, in Dan and Mark's book, uh, you know, the first thing she said when she came back was asking about her child, which makes complete sense as a mother. Um, and then readers who picked up Amazing Spider-Man 31 will know that she has not been reunited with Jerry. She does not know where her baby is, and she does not know who took him or what happened to him. So uh, the premise and end of Spider-Verse of her not existing for a little bit ended up being a really fruitful gestation point for Corolla, Borelli, and I to, to start our story while also tying into the events of Gang War, which is not to say that readers need to go track down every everything related to End of Spider-Verse. Of course you should, because it's a very fun story, but anything you need to know about what happened to Jess um, is summarized in Spider-Woman number one, because as I said, we're doing more of a street-level approach to her, and uh, getting cut from the web of life is not the most street-level thing that can happen to someone. <laughs> so yeah. we, you know, we kind of um, roll with the punches there with a little bit of fun sarcasm, which I think is very in in keeping with Spider Woman's personality. Yeah, uh, and this is an ongoing title. Hooray! We'd love to see it. Um, <laughs> but you know, as you were you were just mentioning, how does this arc? This first arc of the series tie into that larger gang war storyline, you know, villains, people who are coming in and out. I mean, the first issue I read it, loved it. Um, but like you really get a sense of where she is in this world. Yeah, thank you. Well, we had a lot of fun things in our favor, including the fact that we actually launch, I think, like right alongside gang war first strike. So Spider-Woman begins before all the gang war craziness kicks off. But by the end of the issue, her story has dovetailed with um, what's going on in Amazing Spider-Man and, and what Peter Parker is up to. So it's a very Jessica Drew-centric story. Um, and then we get to play with this fun framework that Zeb's put in place of the cities being divided up by different gang bosses who are fighting over territory, and Spider-Man's going to try to confront it from a different angle than he normally does. And I think the solicits have more or less set up how uh, this works for Spider-Woman, which is that longtime fans of Jessica Drew know Hydra, the global terrorist organization, has played a very wicked role in her life, um, including manipulating her to try to be a super soldier for them, accelerating her aging, messing with her memories. So they're kind of an obvious lead for her to track down when Jerry goes missing. 
And as we saw in Amazing Spider-Man 31, Hydra is in fact involved in his disappearance, it seems. But Hydra's also putting their chips behind one of the gang bosses in this gang war. So, you know, Hydra's occupied kind of a fun space in the last couple of years since Secret Empire, because that was a big setback for them in a lot of ways. And we haven't seen them strike back with a vengeance, really, in the years since. So now they've kind of got their, their tentacles in different pots here. And everything that's going on with the gang war and everything that Jessica Drew is tracking down on her own are going to converge in, in pretty violent ways. Yeah, so we've got Hydra, we've got Diamondback, we see characters like Viper, so cool villain stuff going on. But we also see in the first issue, I was really glad to see, like, making sure we know people who are important to Jessica Drew's world. So seeing Captain Marvel coming in there and, like, the besties seeing each other for the first time in a little bit. I love that. Thank you. I couldn't resist the chance to write Carol. She's such a major character. And their friendship, I think, throughout like Kelly Thompson's run on Captain Marvel was just such a, a beautiful, fun, unique dynamic. And we kind of want to turn the screws on Jess here so she can't have her bestie by her side the whole time. Um, but issue one isn't the only time you'll see Captain Marvel in our run. Ooh, anyone else you want to tease about who we might see pop up throughout, uh, whether it's first arc or even where, where your wheels are turning? Yeah, well, I was really excited to put Madam Web in this, uh, Julia Carpenter, because, you know, she's the other most prominent character to carry the Spider-Woman mantle, and she's had her own identity for about a decade now. Um, it, it was funny, I had had a line in the first draft of something like Carol saying, oh, she's going by Madam Web now, and Ellie Pyle, my editor, was like, yeah, she's been going by that for like 12 years. <laughs> I was like, oh. Has it been that long? I feel Holy very old. <laughs> Time is really moving quickly yeah. these days. Um, but no, I was excited to put them together because they haven't been in too many comics together despite sharing this mantle. They don't have an incredibly rich history of, of interacting because they tend to trade off. If one of them is Spider-Woman, the other one is not around that much. So especially wanting to put Jess in a vulnerable position, having Julia be the person she's able to bounce off of, someone that she's not as familiar with, has been really fun to me. And it kind of makes it like a stealth spider women. Heck yeah. Because <laughs> uh, we have her around. And I'm also excited to say that um, one of the newest introductions to the Marvel Universe, a character who debuted this last year, is going to have a cameo across the series. Not Web Weaver, um, but you're in, you're in the right ballpark. Um, so that was exciting. I, I guess I won't reveal mm. who, but... It was fun to have a character who debuted so recently um, be able to pop up because that's how you help establish them is, is having them show up in different books and showing that they are part of the fabric of the Marvel Universe. I love it. We'll look forward to that. It's real good stuff. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Be sure to pre-order Spider-Woman number one. Add that new ongoing series to your pull list at your local comic shop. Spider-Woman number one releases November 29th. So don't have to wait very long to learn more. Head to Marvel.com. Speaking of Madam Web, her web connects them all in a brand new trailer for Madam Web. Check out the new trailer over on Marvel's YouTube channel, and Madam Web is coming soon exclusively to movie theaters. But in the meantime, while you are waiting, you can head over uh, to where you listen to your podcasts, and you can listen to Women of Marvel Kamala Khan. So this episode of Women of Marvel is about Marvel's biggest superfan the one, the only, Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan, and our co-hosts Ellie and Preeti are talking to the one and only Aman Vellani, actress, 
Ms. Marvel, and writer behind the latest Ms. Marvel miniseries. Another guest on the show is also going to be writer Samira Ahmed, fan Rasa Cosplay, and one of the minds behind Ms. Marvel's creation, the one, the only, friend of the show, co-creator of Women of Marvel, Sana Amanath. And you can find that episode wherever you're listening to this, like right now. Like it's also there. Uh, Plus, there's a bonus episode that went out earlier in the week featuring conversations with Marvel Studios, The Marvels, director, producer, and composer. Yes. Uh, All right. Let's keep moving and talk some more Marvel's fun because over at Avengers Campus, Captain Marvel, Ms. Marvel, and Monica Rambeau are assembling together. You get to go higher, further, faster together with them at Avengers Campus. It's a limited time thing at Disney California Adventure Park at the Disneyland Resort in Anaheim, California. So you get the three of them there. Not only is Captain Marvel patrolling the area, but she's got Monica and Ms. Marvel. But there isn't just one place that needs to be defended elsewhere across the globe. Kamala Khan heads to Avengers Campus at Disneyland Paris for the first time, where you can meet her at Avengers Campus. To learn more, head to marvel.com. And there was a brand new announcement about Marvel Studios' What If Season 2. The Watcher returns to Season 2 of Marvel Studios' What If when the animated series begins streaming exclusively on Disney Plus on December 22nd. And, Ryan, in the spirit of the holiday season, fans are invited to unwrap a new episode nightly for nine nights. I love this. It's nine nights of what if. Make sure you check out the new trailer and poster now available over at Marvel.com. And remember, it begins streaming exclusively on Disney Plus starting December 22nd. Can't wait to talk about it. But I want to talk right now about some spiders, mans, uh, because we got to talk about Peter Parker (laughs) and Miles Morales proving that two web heads are better than one in Spectacular Spider-Men. This is an announcement for a new series coming in March where you have Peter and Miles joining forces in their first ongoing series ever together, Spectacular Spider-Men. So it's going to team the two of them up and they are legit the best. It'll also team up some wonderful creators, writer Greg Weissman and... Umberto Ramos, Spectacular Spider-Man number one, arrives in March. For more information, visit marvel.com. All right, I feel like I am only reading this so that I can give Ryan Panago's story. (laughs) And it is because there is no one I know who loves Godzilla more than Ryan Panagos. And now, Ryan... You and the rest of the world are going to have a new omnibus collecting Godzilla's original Marvel comic series. That's right. For those who don't know, which is not Ryan Panagos, because he does, uh, in 1977, Godzilla became one of Marvel Comics' biggest stars, headlining a hit solo series set in the heart of the Marvel Universe. And now, thanks to an exciting new collaboration with Toho International, this host of monumental Godzilla escapades, co-starring your favorite Marvel heroes will be collected next year in Godzilla, the original Marvel Years Omnibus. Uh, The book collects all 24 issues of Godzilla, gloriously remastered in this long-awaited omnibus collection. I know that Ryan has had so many sleepless nights, but Godzilla, the original Marvel Years Omnibus, charges into stores. That's right. Ryan, 
You have less than a year. On October 2024. Uh, but seriously, for more information about this, make sure you head over to marvel.com. This sounds absolutely amazing. Yeah. The only time, as far as I know, that those issues, those 24 issues of that Godzilla comic have been collected is in the Essential Collection, which is a black and white sort of phone book style uh, collection, which I have on my bookshelf. It's great. It's a weird series. I am so excited for more people to read it. Uh, but that's almost a year away. How about comics this week? Look, I'll be honest with y'all. There are 25 new issues this week. uh, So there's a lot out there. Happy Thanksgiving. We're going to go quickly through our picks because again, there's a lot of comics and there's some really good stuff. Uh, First up, Deadpool 7 Slaughters, number one. It's a big one shot with seven different stories. It brings a bunch of creators who have been you know, doing some wonderful stuff for Deadpool for a long time, like a writer, Colin Bunn and Gail Simone. You got to have a Rob Liefeld in there, Steve Fox, who you heard from earlier in the show and many more. Definitely a big one this week. Also on our picks, Fantastic Four number 13. Do you like dinosaurs, Angelique? Do I like dinosaurs? I love dinosaurs. How about Dr. Doom? Dope. He's the best. Uh, but how about a dinosaur version of Dr. Doom? Ooh! And there's the cover by Alex Ross of Dr. Doom and Dino Dr. Doom together. I love this story. It's been a, a couple issues. This is the 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 wrap-up of this dinosaur story, and it is so good. It's written by Ryan North, art by Ivan Coelho, and it is a blast. So much fun. My third pick of the week is Superior Spider-Man number one. There's two awesome stories in here. So good. All of it written by Dan Slott. First story drawn by Mark Bagley and John Dell. Second one by Nathan Stockman. Very, very cool. It all ties into what's going on. There's big Doc Ock stuff in this issue, but it's so good. It's Spidey and Spider-Boy. How do you not love it? We love it. Uh, But as you mentioned, there are 25 total comics this week. Again, happy Thanksgiving, you turkey lurkies. You got something (laughs) to read after dinner. Uh, Go to your local comic shop. Check out Marvel.com for the full list. But coming up, we're joined by Brian Intahar from Insomniac Games and Bill Roseman from Marvel Games to talk about Marvel's Spider-Man 2. Again, it is a very spoilery chat. So if you don't want to be spoiled on the game, please hold the interview until after you've played. We'll be back right after this. You're listening to This Week in Marvel. I'm Angelique Roche. And I'm Ryan Panagos. And again, are you ready for some spoilery Marvel Spider-Man 2 discussions? I I sure hope so. We got a real fun talk about this amazing game with Brian Intahar, who is Senior Creative Director at Insomniac Games, and Bill Roseman, Vice President and Creative Director at Marvel Games. Let's get into that chat. Excited to talk Marvel's Spider-Man 2 with you and get into some spoiler stuff. First thing, is there something you haven't been asked, haven't had a chance to talk about publicly in other spoiler cast chats or or otherwise since the game came out? I'm trying to think. So many people have hit so many things. Like, I never thought they would find the tiger in the zoo. Like, at one point, you meet a tiger and you can (laughs) pet a tiger in a mission. And then the, the designers, after that mission, move the tiger to like a holding area and you can go up there and pet him again but someone found it people find everything they find things i don't want them to find in terms (laughs) of like you know some interesting bugs but i think they've done a really good job of finding a good amount of stuff yeah 
same thing, I think we always keep in mind, hey, two things. The audience is us. And always know that the audience is probably smarter than us. Uh, and um, so everything that could be found or, or discussed or talked about, I think has already been found. I think the speed at which they find things is amazing to me. I'm like, oh my God, they already found this. But uh, yeah, it's it's always fun to see what they what they discover. In, sometimes good, sometimes not so good. You know, I, I want to ask: Do you all remember your first thoughts, even the, or the conversations you had about specifically about Spider-Man Two and how maybe those concepts or ideas or thoughts evolved, changed, or even stayed the same through you know onto release? Brian, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, they Spider-Man Two. Th- discussions were started during Spider-Man 1 when we decided that the final scene was going to be Harry in a tank full of symbiote. So we pretty much had to commit <laughs> really early that Spider-Man 2 was going to be a Venom story and that we were going to kind of twist the way we approached who ends up being the host. I mean, obviously, we kept things a little vague throughout the marketing of the game of who was going to be Venom, but... I mean, we knew from that moment on, I've, I mean, we all, I mean, Bill and I talked about it. We knew very early on that Harry was going to be Venom at the end of the day. You know, how he became Venom was going to be our unique take. And obviously we wanted Pete to have a symbiote suit and everything. But that journey was, you know, saying, okay, we are pretty much committing to Spider-Man 2 being a symbiote story from that day. I mean, I remember where we were and what offense we were in, in the... It what conference we were in, we were looking at the macro Spider-Man one on the wall and someone saying, hey, what if we put Harry in the tank of a symbiote? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's a great example of how we collaborate and work. And it's always a matter of learning, you know, when to lean in and when to like step back, let them cook. And, and then how much we do communicate. And so that scene, yeah, grew from talks about in the first game, why was Norman doing everything he's doing? Yeah, exactly. Because we taught everything was so tied together. Of oh, in the first game, Otto uh, uh, and Norman they were the ones that accidentally created Mister Negative, and oh, they're they're working on all these either biological agents or what seem to be weapons. Like, what is driving them? And so we hit upon the idea of Norman's a dad, um, and. Hey, remember how we said how Harry's in Europe? What if Harry's not in Europe? What if he's there and he's sick? And that's why Norman is doing all these things. He wants to heal his boy. That's very relatable, very Marvel, very soap opera. Has been done before. It's a great choice. That came first. And then it was a later discussion. Brian and the team were chewing on it. And then Brian came back and said, what if in the pod that he's in, what if there's some black goo? And I said, is that the symbiote? And then Brian's like, it could be. And then we were like, yes. And I also think like that example is one to Bill's point is like the level of collaboration and kind of creativity that comes about with working with each other. I think there also it's a good example of trust you know, obviously Harry being a tank with a symbiote is not a story you've seen before, right? So we already know we're not going to do the the exact symbiote story that you've seen in the comics, right? Because it's obviously, you know, mainly people associated with, 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 with Eddie Brock. Um, 
But we've always said from the very beginning, we always care about the human story as much as we do the the one in the one in the suit, the superhero fantasy. Something we've talked a lot about is we just don't want to replicate the stories that you've read or seen in the in the film or TV. We want to bring our own things, but we never want to be embarrassed of the source material. We want to embrace it and celebrate it and respect it, but not be afraid to mix things up from time to time. And I think that's a good example of that. Um, and uh, we do a lot of yes and approach. And I think that's it's a good example of all three of our games, a lot of examples of that. Yeah. I love that it's not just, well, here's five twists we're going to do. We don't know what they are, but we're going to, here they are. That's never the goal. It's what makes the best experience, gameplay. And if it happens to be something new, cool, but let's make sure it's in service of the story and the experience. Yeah, I I always say you don't want to shock. You want to provide the unexpected. You know, shock value it's a shock because it's over quick, right? It doesn't really have a lasting impact, but if it's unexpected, it sticks with you for a while. You start yeah. to move into it. And I think that's kind of what we've always said, like, is it done for shock value or is it earned? You know, and mm-hmm. those kind of questions yeah. we ask ourselves. And like, of course, people ask me like, why isn't it Eddie? Of course, I get it. It's a very obvious question because mm-hmm. Eddie is so associated with Venom. You know, I said, well, one is as a creator, I'm really attached to, personal relationships. And I knew we already had a baked in personal relationship with Harry. Then I thought about my own life and, you know, at different times in your life, you have, you meet new people and you develop new friendships. And we already knew that Pete and Miles friendship and their working relationship was going to be a major factor. Well, we all have probably had moments where we have our new friends, but then all of a sudden an old friend comes back into our life. And how does that impact our day to day? So what's it like? when the new friend is meeting the old friend and the old friend, you know, like all that, like Bill said, the soap opera nature of it. And it just felt that kind of was something that we could build upon. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I love brainstorming the, oh yeah, we're going to have like an opening mission with like this giant Sandman and Pete and Miles. That stuff's really cool, but I probably even enjoy more discussing like the, the human, soap opera like moments because those are the things that i always say if we can make the stuff you know outside the suit make you connect to it and make it emotional and make you care about it you'll care a lot more about the things when you're swinging around the city trying to save it one of the things that i found really interesting i I think i heard you say brian was that you were thinking about otto's placement at the end of spider-man 2 for quite a long time. Like you had something going on with him for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I've had that idea of Norman and Otto having that, a version of that conversation. I mean, Bill, I've had it. We've talked about that for a long time. Yeah. It was almost the opposite of, uh, collectively we came up with the Harry in the, in the tank with the symbiote late in the game. You always had that scene. From, yeah. from from like even when we were beginning, you didn't have the exact dialogue, but yeah. you had the moment, the intention. Yeah. And what is so wonderful about that is we always say beginnings are, are easy, right? Uh, you have a clear canvas. Yeah. Sticking the landing is hard. But when you look ahead and you plant your flagpole, that helps you get through the middle. And that helps uh, that when you get to the end, you don't have to say, oh, my gosh. Now we have to go back 
and, and plant all the seeds for this because you knew that so early. Yeah. It really helps steer the overall uh, story to that moment. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I think also the chemistry that Mark Ralston who plays Norman and Bill who plays Otto, they have from the first game, we were just like, we have to see. They're so good. And I mean this in the nice way. It was almost like seeing two heavyweights on set. Yes. Bringing the best out of each other. And I remember knowing the day they were coming back for Spider-Man 2 to shoot that one scene. And we were like, like everybody wanted to be there for that like one moment of like seeing him back as Otto, hearing the voice and seeing them just like they are just because they're tremendous actors. Obviously, John Pisano's score, fantastic, amazing. But the game also has some uh, really lovely songs in there, some needle drops. And like in the beginning, you've got um, Swing, which is so good. It's like, again, it like gets you moving, gets you, is really fun. Um, then you, uh, there's uh, that great moment where you get new slang uh, by the Shins at Midtown High with Peter and Harry. And I was like, oh, so good. Um, and then Seabird by the Alessi brothers during the Howard mission. I that one in particular, after everything that I've, you, you're like, I I held that I held the Howard mission to like the end 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 of my playthrough of my first playthrough, and I just found it really impactful. I found them all really impactful. But um, how do you decide on when to bring in those kinds of cues? That's a great question. So I will tell, start from the beginning. So we always for the we knew the opening swing would have some type of music, and I actually. I, I'll tell you, I actually hate choosing that music because everybody has an opinion and no matter what we choose, everybody says they hate it <laughs> because it's just natural. Like, oh, has, like I've, what I've learned is if you think people have a lot of opinions on story, they have more opinions on music and we all have different tastes. It's like, it's not, there's nothing, no one's bad. So we all have different tastes. And I remember on Spider-Man 1, there was a lot of feedback on some people liked the, the song, some people didn't like the song internally, right? And then, so I was really hesitant to do another song for Spider-Man 2. And I actually told John Paisano, I was like, and I told Scott, who are Sony Music, I go, get a, get a song that John is going to, a score that John will do, because I don't believe it's going to work. But Alex over at Sony Music, he's like, I, I think we're going to make it work. And I was like, all right. And I was pretty hesitant. And I was like, that's eh, like, eh, probably not going to work. But when Swing came about, it was I, I know when I knew I was listening to a version that was still not done, but after listening to it, I started singing it to myself. That's when I knew it was good. And I was like, oh my God. And I never, either they didn't tell me or they, I never got a note from the team saying they didn't like it. So I was like, that's good. Um, the, the stuff in Queens with Harry, Pete and Harry, that was the animators uh, suggested as a temp track. And Ended up going to the point where I was like, nope, we have to get this music. Please get this music. So it was the animators. I believe it was Bobby Coddington, our cinematics director, animation director, had that suggestion. And then the uh, one that plays during the Pigeon Mission with a Howard, that wasn't the original track for multiple reasons. But Alex, again, helped us. He gave us like 12 different options that we could use. And that was the one we chose. And... Um, yeah, like, it's really funny. Someone I work with yesterday asked me what what kind of role does music play in my life? And I, I was like, that's a really great question. 
And I tend not to be someone who is like, if I'm just sitting around, like listening to music, but I'm like, if I'm in my car, I was listening to it, but I really associate it with like entertainment, like a movie or a TV show or like sports for some reason. Like if someone like makes a documentary and like this, the music, so I attach it to emotional moments in my entertainment. So I always go back to that, like, like Bill and I are both big Rocky fans. I think about that. What's that without the music, right? It's so much about mm-hmm. that music. So I think that's kind of our philosophy. What is the right music that's going to get the emotional? What's going to bring the feels? So and, and You're exactly right, Brian. Music in this case, as Brian said, we're trying to serve the scene and reinforce and help bring that emotion that we're hoping to get out of the audience. And so there are on occasion there is, hey, this may or may not be my my taste in music. Yeah. But you have to put that aside and say, oh, this song is right for the scene. Yeah. And it may not be a song I love or an artist I even know about. Yeah. Um, but as Brian says, when you hear it and it's right, then you're like, that's it. It's not about my personal taste. Yeah. It's for our taste on what we're trying to accomplish. But as we say, music is a soundtrack to your life. Yeah. You remember where you were. You hear a song and and instantly emotions fill your brain. So as Brian said, it's all about when it comes to everything in the game, the lighting, camera angles, in this case, music is all storytelling. And what drives fits the scene. My, my friends and family are crazy because when they bring up a song, I, they'll always they'll say, oh, that's from that soundtrack or that's from that album. I go, oh, no, it's from that movie. That's I go, oh, it's that movie in this moment where that happened. And they're like, yep. What? That's what you. That's how I. That's how my brain like remembers it. And that's how we're introduced to some songs. Yeah. Um, you know, we talked about the symbiote a little bit. We've got the the origins through the meteorite, which I think is a really interesting thing. And then there's the sense of the hive mind and that connection between all the symbiotes and and seeing the spiral shapes that we 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 know from you know, the Venom comics and, and Null and King in Black and these things that, you know, I think Bill is so tuned in to publishing and, and knows everything that's going on in like comics. And then seeing that in, in the game was so cool. And, and like, there's just an energy to seeing these elements come together. There's so much cool stuff there. It, it feels like y'all are probably working a really fine line and balance of like, what works for the story? What's really cool? What's a little bit of fun fan service? And what is just freaking cool to to us making mm-hmm. the game? Like, is that a challenge or is it really like just you guys are just having a blast and barreling? Both. I mean, we always say everything starts with the books. Everything starts with the books. Like, you don't need to go that far to get inspired, right? Go to the books. Go to see what the awesome artists and writers have put together over the years from the very first appearances of Venom all the way through the latest stuff. And what you do is you try to find that, find that sweet spot between, I mean, Bill said this to me, like there are people who don't like any other comic book character, but they love Venom. They love Venom. They love him. What is it about this character that people love? And you look at whether it's the, his, the, the character design, the teeth, the, the symbol, the powers, even the way he talks. Those are things you gotta you gotta deliver. Like those are the things. Like I remember one of the scariest things in this whole project was was casting the voice of Venom because we knew it would be dissected and debated about who it was. And I'm like, 
well, if you get Candyman, it'll be good. <laughs> if you get Tony Todd, it'll be good, right? Um, but um, then there's like, what are, Billy, you always say like the greatest hits, right? We say talk about greatest hits, whether it's stories or things about the character. And, you know, I think what's great is the character, like Venom, has been around for a while. There have been great versions of the character. And how can we pay homage to all those amazing artists and writers who have worked on the character for so long? So whether it's, you know, the, you know, the wings or the the teeth and the symbol and all those kind of things, it's, it's uh, to us, we would not be doing what we do if it weren't for those writers and artists. It's something I learned. Um, it's something at the root of Marvel, as, as Brian said, is to what I was taught. It was Tom Brevoort who said it to me. And uh, I was very early in my career uh, editing comics. And when you start editing, you don't get your choice. You're given what to work on. You're told what to work on. Until eventually you gain more skills, you prove yourself, and then, and then you're allowed to start pitching things. So at the beginning, you're assigned things. And what Tom said to me is, and he learned this in his career, is like, look, you're going to be asked to take on a project. You didn't come up with it. You didn't pitch it. It's going to happen. But now you have now you're the editor, and you have to ha- it has to come out on time, and you have to make it as as good as you can. And part of that is, if it is a character that either you're not interested in, wasn't your favorite, it can be a character that you've never liked. Your duty is to think about the people that do love that character, and what are the things they love about that character, and you can only do that by doing your homework, doing your research, looking through, start writing lists. What do people like visually, story-wise? It can be a cover. It can be a panel. It can be one story. It can be a certain thing the character does again and again and again because people love that. And so it's really a combination, as Brian said, let's go back to the very beginning. Let's look at everything. And then let's pick. And don't be afraid to mix and match. Those wings first appeared back in the 90s. Yeah. More recently, they had the red coloring, but they first appeared back in the 90s. So that is part of it is let's look through throughout the decades. Let's pick moments. It could be things people have forgotten about. But as Brian said, respect the DNA. That means do your research. Don't be afraid to mix them up. Don't be afraid to say, can I take this thing from the 90s and combine this thing from five years ago? As long as it feels right. Again, it's unexpected, but then you're like, ah, I know what they did there. They got this story and that story, and then they did something new. So it's about looking at all of the writers, all of the artists, who created what, and, and mix and match. And, and Bill said, like, it's not just a panel. I remember when we first started, when I started doing my research on Venom, what I basically did was I read all my, the best stories, and what I used to do is just take a screen grab of yeah. of the thing and if you look at my phone which because it was my ipad that you know cloud transfers my phone it's like there's just panels like just panels of moments of like what does it look like when pete rips the symbiote off there's a great image from ultimate spider-man where it's pouring rain and you have pete on one side with the hood over his head with venom standing in the like i remember i still remember that like little image um, from, I believe from ultimate and those things kind of like all add up to like knowing the character, knowing what people love about it. Can you replicate, you know, we always knew like, 
like how could you not do a symbiote story without Pete pulling it off, right? And I mean, that was one of the, like, and from a technical chat, it's like one thing to draw it, one thing to do it interactive in a game, a lot of moving pieces. But that's like one of the final things that we finally got right when we're developing the game was how can we make that, that feel like he's really ripping something that's bonded to him. And do something new. You got the idea of the bell from the bell yeah. tower. Yeah. From the story where before there was Venom. Yeah. And the bell drove the costume off of Peter. Yeah. You got that bell. You got that idea. And then you had Craven use it. Yeah. And he took the bell outside and it was then one of his implements. Yeah. Like any hunter will use different things to attract an animal or hurt an animal. Yeah. So it had never been done before, but it felt right. You know, it's funny. You think about those, those times, like all those conversations and stories. And, you know, I think back, I'm like, oh, my God, there's so many moving pieces of these things and how many decisions had to be made to actually get the game out. It's almost like it's almost uh you sit there and scratch your head going, oh my God, I can't believe we actually finished the game because so many things have to be like line up perfectly and make the right progress and stuff like that. So um, yeah, um, it's a uh, team did a great job. So I'm just going to yeah. go back to it's, it's a lot of the, like I can tell you, I didn't come up with the idea to bring the bell into the fight. They just, I thought of that. So it's like, that's when you just, when the team's as motivated as you are to make a great game, they make cool stuff. Yeah. And we say best idea wins. Don't care where it comes from, who said it, best idea wins. Like, for example, with the Howard mission, that was something that a designer created during a game jam before one holiday break. And it was so good that we were like, we got to finish it. Anything that um, we do in the game, even the smallest bit of content, has to have a compelling story. So, you know, when you're collecting all those Sandman crystals, there's a story that builds yeah. up over time. Um, even with the spider bots, obviously, that's a little bit more of a, surprise and but you know the the sandman one's pretty emotional and it all come through just vo so i think you know thing we we knew this but in terms of just making sure it was always a you know i have a slide in my in my my pitch deck for spider-man 2 and we basically i have a picture of it's got the marvel logo and all these characters and my line is when it comes to marvel everybody cares about story and everything we're going to do is going to have a story associated with it um, and I think that's a big push for us to make sure that we're connecting not only to your head, but to your heart. And, um, that's something in like, you know, I think the team did a really good job of whether we're talking about the main story with Miles and Lee and a sense of maybe not forgiving Lee, but having to move on from that moment mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. listen to mm -hmm. how grandpa Earl talks about his life and him reflecting on his life. Those are all real emotions that whether you're in a superhero game or not, superhero world or not, are real. And I think that's the stuff yeah. that I really appreciate the team prioritizes as we make these games. And we love that Insomniac loves that and PlayStation loves that. Um, that is at the root of Marvel or any good story. We do want that mix of humor. Yeah, there's humor and there's action and uh, drama and there's also sadness. It's it's the it's the whole rainbow of emotions, and that we always want to show that our characters experience just like us. Whenever you tell a story, there's the plot, what happens, and there's the themes. And we always remind ourselves of Marvel tells moral fables. That's what we do. 
It's the epic storytelling, but with a human heart. And it's that heart that hits you just as strongly as the, as the action moments. So from the very beginning, when the team agreed, okay, this is a Venom story, in addition to looking up and finding all the cool visual stuff, Venom stuff, teeth and tongues and nails and wings, and you want all that stuff. But then you start talking about themes and emotions and what Venom stories are about. Of all the villains we could pick, what if creators used the idea of Venom and the symbiote to talk about? They talk about addiction, talk about isolation. You can use it for redemption. It can be used to bring up interventions, friends trying to help other friends. Those are some of the, what we call kind of like North Star things we talk about. Always remember the theme and everything should connect to that theme. This was made during COVID. This, almost the entire game was made uh, with us, the creators, in the same headspace of the characters. And it kind of goes back and forth. By that, I mean, in the beginning of the game, everyone is very isolated. And they're all facing choices. But they're not talking to each other about it. Miles has to do his, he's, he's feeling torn about his college essay. And that symbolizes, what am I going to do with my life? Peter is still grappling with the death of Aunt May. He hasn't gotten past that. That's symbolized with him inheriting the house. And then his feelings towards Mary Jane. And Mary Jane, at the same time, she's like, what am I going to do with my life? I'm going to focus on my career. And so all of the characters were trying to make decisions about who they were, who they wanted to be, but they were all very isolated, just like we were. We were separated. We were each at home. And so I think that bled back and forth. Um, and, and, and it's how we always say, and I always tell Insom, you guys are artists and this is your art. Of all the things you could do, you are choosing to do this and hopefully you're doing it because you want to communicate something. And maybe it's about the world around you. Maybe it's about your life. Uh, and art holds up a mirror to life. And we don't have the answers, but we'd like to ask questions. And so I think the team collectively did an amazing job of, of continuing the tradition of all great storytellers. But, you know, Marvel is close to my heart. A Marvel tradition is how do we use our stories to talk about our lives and what's going on? We got really pretty cool freaking jobs. <laughs> and, and at the end of the day, I always say, you know, yes, you know, getting critical reviews that are score well is really great. And, you know, obviously sales are, you know, there's a, it's a business at the end of the day, but, you know, this might sound cliche to say, but like, would the five-year-old, would the 10-year-old version of me who is like holding on to the action figure for dear life, would he be happy? Because if he's happy, we're probably going to be okay. We try and take the moment and live in the moment and appreciate what we're doing. Um, another way I do that is anytime I'm interviewed or like this here on a podcast, I send it, I send a link to my mom so that I can continue to say, Hey, remember when I bugged you to send me to the, drive me to the comic shop or go to this convention or when you're going grocery shopping, let me run over to the drugstore next door and I can look at the spinner rack. Uh, that all led to this. So I always want to say thank you. Uh, and also, uh, 
to say to her, this is what I do. This is my job. <laughs> I'm, always, I'm always trying to explain to people. I don't, I don't draw the pictures, but I do this. Um, but mostly it's a thanks. You know, I think, and I think we all collectively do that is um, we appreciate it. And we appreciate those who helped us get here. Fellas, always a delight. Congratulations. Ryan, thank you. That was Brian Intahar from Insomniac Games and Bill Roseman from Marvel Games. Play Marvel Spider-Man 2 exclusively on PlayStation 5. Oh, yeah. And now it is time for the Pizza Resistance, one of our favorite parts of the show every single week. That's right. Community, a.k.a. This Week in Messages. Our guest next week is the wonderful Jason Lowe to talk about his upcoming run on The Century. We had a lot of questions for Jason, and we know we're going to be talking about Century again. So we actually wanted to sneak in a question Mm -hmm. that we were just curious about. Question of the week for next week is... What were your favorite parts of Marvel Studios, The Marvels? Tweet your answers using hashtag This Week in Marvel. Email them to twinpodcast.marvel.com or send a message to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash This Week in Marvel. Please make sure to tell us it's okay to read Twim on the show so we can read it on the show. Uh, but okay, let's get to it. So last week's question of the week, what was your favorite thing, story, moment, character, power, whatever, from Marvel's Spider-Man 2? And our first tweet is from WWE Stacy Strong NXT at SJB479. I like being able to switch between different suits and skins throughout the world. Uh, very intricate designs. The game has amazing artwork and is very appealing to the eyes and senses. We got an email here from Paul Warren who said... I'd describe the best part of Marvel Spider-Man 2 as swinging to that platinum. Insomniac dishes out games where it's so fun to move and that have just the right amount of fun to get every trophy. Love that, Paul. And then Paul also uh, shot us an email that was, we got to it after we recorded last week, but we see you, Paul. Uh, And then we got some emails, one from Liv G. My favorite part of the game was when Harry Osborn turned into Venom and when he got to fight Spider-Man in the symbiote himself. I love these parts because it made me feel very tense, but loved it at the same time. I love this because also at my heart. Yes. Thank you, Liv. That was wonderful. So good. It's a great way to end this episode, Ryan Panagos. Yeah. This episode of This Week in Marvel was produced by Jasmine Estrada, Isabel Robertson, Ryan Panagos, and Angelique Rochette. Our senior manager, audio production and development, is Brad Barton. Emily Godfrey is our production manager. Special thanks to Flurkins. And Flur Kitties. Oh, the best. I'm Ryan. I'm Angelique. This is Marvel. Your universe.